when we are on a psycho-spiritual journey, we will have to face our fears. And what I've, the conclusion I've come to is that if we want to progress on our spiritual journey, we must not let fear rule our lives. We have to face it. We have to deal with it. We have to, at some point, go ahead, acknowledge that we have the fear, as you are doing, and at some point we need to say, okay, I have these fears, I'm going to speak anyway, I'm not going to be silent. Um, because I think it was Martin Luther King said, the moment we become silent about things that are important is the day we, is the day we begin to die. Today on Progressive Spirit, I speak with psychotherapist Francis Schuer, author of a series of articles entitled, Why Do Good People Become Silent or Worse About 9-11? Next on Progressive Spirit. Stay with us. Pacifica Radio Network, the Public Radio Exchange, PRX, and from the studios of KBOO in Portland, Oregon, this is Progressive Spirit. ProgressiveSpirit.net. I'm John Schott. Uh, amazing, incredible, pick your word. For the third time today, it's reminiscent of those pictures we've all seen too much on television before when a building was deliberately destroyed, destroyed by well-placed dynamite to knock it down. Dan Rather, reporting on the explosive collapse of World Trade Center Building 7 on the afternoon of September 11th, 2001. 9-11. What happened? Earlier this year, I finally got around to watching the documentary film 9-11 Explosive Evidence Experts Speak Out by architects and engineers for 9-11 Truth. The film presents evidence and facts that the most probable explanation for the collapse of the three World Trade Center skyscrapers was due to controlled demolition. The buildings came down not because of airplanes or fire, but because of explosives. It's pretty obvious, really. Just watch clips of the buildings collapse symmetrically into their own footprints, into dust, at near free-fall speed. Controlled demolition is how that's done. In addition to analysis by architects, engineers, and scientists regarding the buildings themselves, the film included testimony by psychologists, including today's guest, Francis Shore. When we hear information that contradicts our worldview, social psychologists call the resulting insecurity cognitive dissonance. For example, with 9-11, we have one cognition, which is what the official story of 9-11, what our government told us, what our media, media repeated to us over and over, that 19 Muslims attacked us. On the other hand, we have what scientists, researchers, architects, engineers are now beginning to tell us, which is that there is evidence that shows that the official story cannot be true. So now we've lost our sense of security. We are starting to feel vulnerable. Now we're confused. That's Francis Schuer from the film 9-11, Explosive Evidence, Experts Speak Out. She wrote a series of articles that are published on the Architects and Engineers for 9-11 Truth website, ae911truth.org. The series of articles is entitled, Why Do Good People Become Silent, or Worse, About 9-11? I found them to be quite helpful in understanding the difficulty we have in accepting hard truths. So I asked her to come on Progressive Spirit and speak with me about 9-11 and what she's learned. One of the interesting things she discovered is how white people and people of color see 9-11 differently. Right. Well, one of the curious things about 9-11, uh, the whole issue of 9-11, is that it appears to be the people who have, um, let me say, a family history of oppression and abuse from authorities. Uh, it appears to be minorities 
um, and people who are not of the dominant culture who are more open. And these are people who are often less educated, um, but they appear more open to this theory that our authorities could be abusive to us, uh, the uh, people in our own country. Uh, so what had happened is, is at a People's Fair booth, um, and this Hispanic man came up to me. He surveyed the booth quite uh, in detail, and he seemed very perturbed. And he came up to me and said, we talk about this in our neighborhood. We talk about this, but we, we talk about it only among ourselves. He said, but you are white, meaning I should not be a person who is aware of this because I'm a person of privilege, and I'm a person who benefits from this society. And um, there was then an a Afro-American woman who came up and practically duplicated that scene, saying, Honey, we talk about this among ourselves all the time, but we keep it to ourselves. Well, we don't talk about it in public. And um, that was just very, very interesting to me. And then it was um, Peter Dale Scott who said it was also his observation that people who are more educated, who are benefiting from our society the most, are the people who are less likely to want to hear this information uh, because it, it's information that says this society, this system that we've been benefiting from is corrupt to the core, and they do not want to hear that information. So they're very resistant to it. It's just a very curious um, Phenomenon. In her 20 years as a psychotherapist, she focused on depth psychology, which involves both the psychodynamic and transpersonal aspects of psychological healing. Frances Schur co-founded Colorado 911 Truth in 2004 and is a member of the 911 Consensus Panel, as well as the Medical Professionals for 911 Truth. She's with me on the phone to discuss the series of articles she is writing for Architects and Engineers for 911 Truth, or AE911Truth.org, entitled, Why Do Good People Become Silent, or Worse, About 9-11? These articles examine the psychological resistance to information that contradicts the official account of 9-11, or to any strongly held belief. Welcome, Francis, to Progressive Spirit. Yeah, thanks, John. Glad to finally make this connection with you. Talk about the process of uh, how you became uh, suspicious of the official story of what happened on September 11th, 2001. <laughs> right. Everyone's got their own story for that day. Um, well, I actually was suspicious on the day of, and it's not because I knew anything. I didn't know anything about any of the evidence. Uh, I was, it was strictly intuitive, and I guess I see myself as both a person who has a, a pretty strong sense of intuition, but also a good analytical abilities, and uh, hopefully. <laughs> um, but I, on the day of, I remember just the words coming out of my mouth, I don't think this could happen without someone knowing about it and allowing it to happen. And, but I did believe the official story. I believed it was uh, 19 Muslims uh, directed by Osama bin Laden and that they uh, did do this because they hate us and hate our, as they said, hate our freedoms. Um, so I was very instrumental in getting people to go to churches to explain to people why people, other people in the world might dislike us. Um, and in my mind, it was, it was because of what our uh, foreign policy is and what our CIA and uh, what America is doing around the world that is causing so much devastation to the lives of people around the world, especially in the Middle East. So uh, I had good reason to think that they also attacked us because they hated us for good reason. But then I also then received um, a video and then a book that explained that there was a lot of evidence uh, that showed that um, we that that we were not being told the uh, the truth by our officials. That there was a lot of evidence that led to uh, elements within our government and military. Um, and so then I started studying the issue, and I just got uh, I carried away and very involved with it. 
And well, that's kind of how my journey started. I wrote my um, I wrote a letter and delivered it, personally delivered it to my U.S. representative. I was told by her executive director that I would be taken very seriously about this, that uh, he was aware that um, of what our CIA could do, quote unquote. And then uh, I got a personal letter back from my U.S. representative saying, we will look into this. And then... Um, uh, and then after that, I got the silent treatment, you know, and no, no letter I wrote after that was received, uh, was, was answered. I just got the complete brush off and silent treatment, even though I tried several times to make contact with them. So, and so when, when, when was that when you first contacted them? Was that? Uh, uh, that was probably uh, when I, let me just see, so the, the book, I read the book in summer of 2002 so I probably contacted uh, my U.S. representative in the spring of 2003. I don't remember if it was before or after the invasion of, of uh, Iraq. But almost, even within those first couple of, of years, there was more openness, it seemed to be, in our society yeah. to question. Yes, that's true. That's true. Um, I, I agree with you on that. Yeah, what was it that convinced you? At the end, I mean, you mentioned that you had this book, and 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 but was there something that was just kind of a smoking gun for you? It was the accumulation of evidence, not one particular thing. Okay. Um, there was, uh, as I read in this book, which is called "The War on Freedom" by Nafis Mossadegh Ahmed, and um, it was an excellent book. A real scholar who had done a, an amazing amount of research, um, and. Uh, he talked about the intelligence failure that there were FBI agents who knew the knew the day and and the I believe the time they knew had very specific evidence of when attacks would occur and where they would recur um, and these FBI agents um, uh, tried very hard to contact John Ashcroft who was the attorney general at the time. He would not answer their calls. They got David Shippers, who was the uh, counsel who was in charge of the um, investigation into Clinton's uh, sexual affair uh, and his lying about that. And they thought surely David uh, uh, John Ashcroft would listen to him. But even David Shippers could not get through to John Ashcroft. He would not answer his phone calls. So they were desperate. And then these FBI agents, who were obviously very honest employees of the FBI, were gagged. And in my, at least what I've read is they were told they, they were gagged and they were told they would be prosecuted if they talked about this evidence that they had, this foreknowledge that they had. Uh, so there was that sort of thing. There was the, um, the, um, the air defense failure, which from what I understand, is, is unprecedented, that usually the uh, Air Force jets uh, scramble and are on the tail of any airplane that is off course or suspected to be hijacked or just off course or transponder has gone down. And within 10 to 20 minutes, they should be on the tail of those planes. And on 9-11, it was over an hour and a half, and no plane had even gotten up in the air, hadn't even intercepted these planes. I'm not talking about shot down. I'm talking about just getting on their tail. So there were too many unprecedented occurrences on that day. Um, it, it was the accumulation of evidence. And at that point in time, I did not even know about the characteristics of the collapses of the three buildings. Um, I was not even aware of that. There was the other evidence that was just accumulating. There was too much, too many anomalies. And so that's what convinced me. And then it was in 2004, I learned about the freefall collapse of Building 7 and the near freefall collapse of, of World Trade Towers um, 1 and 2. And just common sense tells you that that cannot happen uh, without explosive, explosives removing the material beneath and then science also tells you that the only way buildings can fall at free fall or near free fall is if the material, the structural material beneath has been removed. 
and that is the the only way that can be done is with controlled demolition. So that just changed my opinion from allowed it to happen to know there were people in the know in the government that um, that basically orchestrated this event. If you're just joining us, I came to that conclusion. If you're just joining us on Progressive Spirit, I'm speaking with Frances Schuer. She's a psychologist. She wrote a series of articles called Why Do Good People Become Silent or Worse About 9-11? And she was featured in the film 9-11 Explosive Evidence Experts Speak Out. Uh, I, 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 too, was convinced uh, after it took some time, uh, but I remember reading uh, David Ray Griffin's books and um, his first book about Christian faith and the truth behind 9-11, which is published by my denomination's uh, publishing house at Presbyterian Church USA for a while. And then it was uh, removed, and uh, and so as I followed that intrigue, and I started, wait a second, there's something here, and it, but it took some time for me to be able to um, drum up the the whatever it is to um, address it. <laughs> well, and, and that's kind of what I want to talk about because the evidence was is is pretty direct uh, yeah. for all of us, but it's very difficult to accept it. And that's why I'm speaking with you today. Uh, and you wrote a series of essays, Why Do Good People Become Silent or Worse About 9-11? Why did you decide to write those, and, and how did those come to be? Well, yeah, first of all, I agree with you. The evidence is crystal clear. It's very easy to uh, understand. The evidence is, I mean, any lay person can understand the evidence, but it's the psychological issue of why people will not want to uh, accept that evidence, or even if they do accept the evidence, why they don't want to talk about it, why they remain silent about it. And what, uh, how that, that was a process, you know, for a long time, for years, people were asking me, Fran, you need to write about this, about the psychological aspects of this, because that's what's difficult for people here. And I said, well, I don't know, I'm still trying to figure it out myself. Uh, because it was pretty easy for me um, to see uh, uh, that we were not told the truth, and um, uh, so I just didn't—I just didn't know. I was just looking, and and in the meantime, I was listening to people, and as I listened, I would—I would go home and I would write down their immediate responses to me. Uh, in other words, when I brought up the subject of 9/11 or the subject of 9/11 came up. I would then write down their spontaneous remarks to me. And I felt in those spontaneous remarks, there was a lot of truth and there was a lot of information. So I took, so then finally, someone from the writer's team at Architects and Engineers for 9-11 Truth said, Fran, would you give us some ideas? We want to write an article on the psychology of 9-11. And so I started writing to give them some ideas and I couldn't stop writing. Um, Evidently, somehow, um, I was gathering uh, a lot of information, and I just kept writing. I wrote seven pages, and they said, well, Fran, why don't you just write the article? And I said, okay, I will. And then um, I started writing, and uh, instead of an article, it turned into a year later, I had several uh, installments of a serial essay. And what happened is people would come to me when they knew I was writing this and they'd say, well, what about this? And what about terror management theory? And what about signal detection theory? And some of these things I'd never heard of. I'd never learned about them. So I did uh, some reading on them and then would write another installment about that particular theory. And so it was actually a, a a project that many people participated in. And now, let me make just, just kind of the mechanics of it. You have, what, 20 uh, episodes? I have now 20 uh, installments, and the next one, uh, installment 21, will be on the role of the media. Um, my, I wasn't going to write on this because I had mentioned it several times, and um, the writing team asked me, Fran, would you do uh, an installment on the media? because this is so important as to why people become silent or worse about 9-11. And I said, no, I'm just not an expert in that, you know, and they kept pressing me and I said, okay, I will. So it's taken me, uh, uh, for various reasons, it's taking me a year, but I finally have a, a draft of, of uh, and I, I decided it's such a complicated subject, I needed to do four installments 
on the media. And the first installment, which I hope will be published soon, um, is called uh, The Role of the Media, Whatever Happened to Investigative Journalists? Because we should have had, with the evidence being so clear, we should have had journalists questioning this very close to the beginning. I can understand at the very beginning when we were all in such shock why no one would ask the right questions. But after that, when the family members themselves were, were pleading for uh, an investigation, when they had many questions, the media stayed silent. They did not report on what these family members, what their questions were or their experiences. And then there were also, of course, uh, independent researchers who were looking into the issue. So the media should have reported on this, but they remained dead silent about the whole issue. So the question became why. Why were they silent? Why, if they said anything, they were only ridiculing? So I've done my research on that, and I have. Um, it's been quite the education looking into our media. Well, I'm looking forward to those, and those will be published on AE911truth.org? Yes. All right. Now, your article, the series of articles are called uh, Why Do Good People Become Silent or Worse About 9-11? I get why people become silent, but why do you, what do you mean in your title or worse? Well, there's some people who, besides, who do not become silent, but actually fight us. In fact, fight us vehemently, fight us tooth and nail. And um, so what I, what I see is that some people just remain silent. They don't want to go there. They don't want to talk about it. Uh, it's too scary of a subject for them. And, um, and, but there are other people who become uh, angry and defensive, and they go out of their way to fight us, uh, to uh, try to prove that we're wrong, to, to ridicule us. And, um, and that is what I mean by or worse. Okay, Francis Shure, my guest on Progressive Spirit. All right, Francis, here's, here's my fear. Um, uh, I have a job, and I'm afraid that I'm going to lose friends, lose credibility, be ridiculed, perhaps even lose my position if I talk about 9-11. Now, obviously, we're on the radio now, so, but it's taken this long uh, for me to get to this point. It's easier for me to talk about other social issues. Uh, so how do I address this fear? <laughs> Good question. Uh, well, um, you know, I, I suspect you're on a psycho-spiritual journey, as I am. And uh, what I've learned is that when we are on a psycho-spiritual journey, we will have to face our fears. And what I've, the conclusion I've come to is that if we want to progress on our spiritual journey, we must not let fear rule our lives. We have to face it. We have to deal with it. We have to, at some point, go ahead, acknowledge that we have the fear, as you are doing, and at some point we need to say, okay, I have these fears. I'm going to speak anyway. I'm not going to be silent. Um, because I think it was Martin Luther King said, the moment we become silent about things that are important is the day we, is the day we begin to die. So um, we have to decide if we move toward life or not. So that's, that's easy said and sometimes harder to do. But the first thing is to become aware of the fear, to talk about the fear with other people. And then once you do that, I find that my courage uh, then uh, it just allows me to move forward. In one of your essays, a person of color came up to you, and uh, you write about this, about a person of color coming up to you and was surprised that you were talking about 9-11 and you were white. Um, what, what do you know about the demographics uh, regarding 9-11 truth? Right. Well, one of the curious things about uh, 9-11, the whole issue of 9-11, is that it appears to be the people who have um, let me say, a family history of oppression and abuse from authorities. Uh, it appears to be minorities um, and people who are not of the dominant culture who are more open. And these are people who are often less educated, um, but they appear more open to this theory that our authorities could be abusive to us. Uh, the uh, people in our own country. Uh, so what had happened is, is at a People's Fair booth, um, and this Hispanic man came up to me. He surveyed 
the booth quite uh, in detail, and he seemed very perturbed. And he came up to me and said, we talk about this in our neighborhood. We talk about this, but we, we talk about it only among ourselves. He said, but you are white, meaning I should not be a person who is aware of this because I'm a person of privilege and I'm a person who benefits from this society. And um, there was then an Afro-American woman who came up and practically duplicated that scene saying, honey, we talk about this among ourselves all the time, but we keep it to ourselves. Well, we don't talk about it in public. And um, that was just very, very interesting to me. And then it was um, Peter Dale Scott who said it was also his observation that people who are more educated, who are benefiting from our society the most, are the people who are less likely to want to hear this information uh, because it, it's information that says this society, this system that we've been benefiting from is corrupt to the core, and they do not want to hear that information. So they're very resistant to it. It's just a very curious um, Phenomenon. I'm speaking with Francis Schur, author of the series of articles, Why Do Good People Become Silent or Worse About 9-11? These articles are published on the website ae911truth.org. We continue our conversation after the break. This is Progressive Spirit, progressivespirit.net. I'm John Schuck. Stay with us. ProgressiveSpirit.net. I'm John Schuck. My guest is Frances Schur. She's a psychotherapist who has written a series of articles for architects and engineers for 9-11 Truth regarding the psychological resistance to information that contradicts the official account of 9-11 or to any strongly held belief. The series of articles is entitled, Why Do Good People Become Silent or Worse About 9-11? People who are, are at the point where they're, they're doubting uh, the official story uh, feel isolated. There are actually more people who doubt this official story than they may think. That this is true. And we have, we have, I can't tell you how many people come to our meetings and say, I can't talk to my wife about this or my husband. I can't talk to my friends. This is the only place I can come and talk about this. And they're so grateful uh, and um, uh, it, it is true that they do not know that there's actually a very large percentage of the American public who question, seriously question, the official story of what happened on 9-11. And the polls show 45%, this was some years back actually, 45% of the population believe we need a new investigation, that we didn't have a real one. It was in 2006 Scripps-Howard poll that said that 36% of Americans across the board believed that our government either knew about the attacks and allowed them to happen or believed that the government, elements within the government, were complicit in those attacks, orchestrated those attacks. That's a huge percentage. That's over one-third of Americans. So, so people do not realize that there are a large percentage of people who do not believe the official story, who believe that the government was involved in some way. And, in fact, if I, as I talk about it, for example, I talked to my contractor a couple of years ago, and this is very typical, and he'll first be quiet when I talk about it, and he says, then he'll be very quiet, and he'll say, yes, you know, there's no way those buildings could have come down like that. I know about construction and there's no way those buildings could ever have come down like that. So when it's brought up, there will be more people than we suspect will talk about this issue, but they have it's a taboo issue. Uh, they know to keep quiet about it, 
And they don't talk about it unless someone else brings it up. I'm speaking with Frances Schur. She's a psychologist, wrote a series of articles, and is still writing these articles. Why do good people become silent or worse uh, about 9-11? Labeling people conspiracy theorists uh, seems to be uh, the most effective tactic of keeping, uh, or at least one effective tactic of keeping uh, people silent. Uh, what, what is the psychological effect of that, and how do we respond to it? Right. Well, we know that we fear, we fear dreadfully, we fear, we do not want to be uh, called a conspiracy theorist. And I've seen this so often in conversations where people will, uh, they have the um, obligatory preface to their remark. They say, well, I, I'm not a conspiracy theorist or anything like that, but, you know, and then they'll go on and say what they want to say. We have, a, we, have been very, we have been very conditioned in our culture to fear being called a conspiracy theorist, because that means we're, not, we're nuts, we're, we're, we're cranks, we're not worth listening to. So, um, so I think one of the fears we fear the most, one of, the, one of our greatest fears, is to be ostracized by our family and by our friends. We fear being isolated. I think that's one of our human, uh, as human beings, that's one of our greatest fears. Uh, we're very social creatures, and we need our community to survive. So uh, we do everything we can to be as I say, in the middle of the bell curve, to be part of that community rather than to be ostracized or looked on with suspicion by that community. Uh, so the, word, the term conspiracy theorist, Lance, Lance DeHaven-Smith, who is a professor out of Florida State University, did some meticulous research looking into how this term became uh, a disparaging term. And what he discovered through his research is that um, the CIA, this is a conspiracy theory, conspiracy, the CIA uh, back in 1967, when a lot of very credible people were questioning the Warren Commission report on the assassination of John F. Kennedy, uh, uh, the CIA was saying, look, there's too much questioning about what happened here. They're even starting to blame us, the CIA, so we have to put a stop to this. So they sent out what they called a dispatch to their foreign in the in Europe, their foreign uh, press, the foreign um, agents, and these foreign agents got these talking points to the press in Europe, uh, and uh, and these talking points would say things like, oh, you know, somebody, no one can keep a secret. Somebody would have talked. Um, uh, these conspiracy theorists are just in their egos. They're conspiracy theorists, and they shouldn't be listened to. So after that, the the use of the term conspiracy theory or conspiracy theorist skyrocketed in the media and became an extremely effective operation by the CIA to condition us to fear being called conspiracy theorists. So there we are. Now we're stuck with this. And uh, so that's why it's so, so uh, uh, difficult for people to, uh, to, to basically disagree with the government, because if they disagree with a government official report on anything, they can be called a conspiracy theorist. So it becomes a term you call people who don't agree with an official explanation of anything. Well, now here we are 16 years after um, yeah. 2017. Are, are we closer or are we further away? Um, one of your essays talked about when we get to a tipping point of, of kind of people in authority who are beginning to accept things and speak out. I mean, I still have trust in that. Mm -hmm. um, but, I'm, but I'm also concerned that so much time has passed that it's a, a, even a tougher job now. Right. And it is a tougher job uh, now, I believe, uh, because uh, people often will say, well, there's so much, there's so many things we need to deal with now. You know, I mean, there's Trump, you know, as our president, there's all the things he's doing. And, and, uh, and but they, and so let's deal with the things we can deal with. Uh, too much time has passed. But um, what others of us say is that no, so much of what's going on now in the world is still um, uh, is still due to uh, the attacks of 
And so we need to reveal the truth about what happened on 9-11. This will pull the rug out from under a lot of these atrocities that we are perpetrating around the world. We know that uh, Physicians for Social Responsibility in a very uh, meticulous study have said that in three countries, Afghanistan, Pakistan, and Iraq, are we, the Americans, uh, through our army, our, our military, has killed 1.3 to 2 million people in those three since 9-11. Um, that is a conservative estimate. They say it could be twice that much. We are killing millions of people. We are torturing people. We're still torturing people uh, because of 9-11. So for many of us, it is very, very current, and 9-11 has been the pretext for all of these atrocities. So what we're saying is, no, it's very, very important that we deal with this. How can we move forward in any kind, with any kind of integrity as a country without dealing with this? Yeah, I, I uh, was talking to a friend of mine, and we were talking about 9-11. Truth uh, is so what, what can end these wars? Yes, exactly. Now, I want to offer you some objections uh, that people might have that I hear every now and then, and uh, and help me kind of put this in perspective, perhaps uh, psychologically or otherwise. Well, this just couldn't happen because so many people would need to be in the know. It's too big of a conspiracy to carry out. Right. And as I mentioned before, <clears throat> this is one of the talking points that the CIA delivered to their foreign agents, and who then delivered it to the foreign media, and the, then it came home to our media. It was exactly one of the talking points. Um, people would talk. No one can keep a secret. But we find, when we look at the evidence, we find that, yes, people can keep secrets. And we, we also find that there's a way of keeping people silent about uh, what they are doing, uh, for example, there's, there's what's called compartmentalization. We know that in the Manhattan Project, with the development of the atomic bomb, uh, the way people kept that, I guess well over 100,000 people who were working on that project kept it very secret. Even Truman did not know about it until he became president. Um, and um, the way this was kept uh, secret is through the device of compartmentalization. In other words, you work on your own little bit of the project, and you only know what you need to know to work on your part of the project. And then you're also sworn to secrecy, of course. And no one knows the full picture. Only a very few people at the top know the full picture. So that is one way that people can keep secrets. On the other hand, we look at there really have been whistleblowers about 9-11. There have been people who have spoken out or who have threatened to spoken out. Sibel Edmonds, for one, was an FBI. He, she worked for the translation department of the FBI, and she has been called by the ACLU the most gagged person in the history of the U.S., she has evidence that could blow, a part of her evidence that she would like to divulge could blow open the whole story of 9-11. But she has been gagged and she has been told um, she would face prison if she talked. She has, nonetheless, she has said, but this is for the welfare of everyone. It's illegal to keep someone silent like this uh, with uh, the State Secrets Privilege Act. Um, uh, it's it's not legal to do so if it involves the health and well-being and welfare of people. So she has offered to go to any mainstream media outlet to uh, talk and give her full story. But the mainstream media won't touch it. And as Daniel Ellsberg said, uh, we can imagine that calls have gone out to the media, don't touch this, you will be prosecuted if you do. So again, we get back to the media, the complicity of the media in this whole, in this silence, and how important the media is. And let's talk about the media, because um, uh, not only the mainstream media, but uh, alternative media that I might right. trust. I'll mention Amy Goodman. Even alternative media doesn't speak out. 
That's true. That's true. And I am addressing that in in my next essay uh, on the media of what happened to investigate, whatever happened in investigative journalists. Uh, this is true. And we do not know why. Uh, I've talked about it with friends. I've, I've thought about this. Um, are they fearful of, of repercussions to themselves and their families? Are they fearful of losing their jobs? Are they fearful of losing their, pu- their pulpit? In other words, if Glenn Greenwald, for example, suddenly started talking about 9-11, maybe then he would not be invited ever again to speak on Democracy Now! And if mm-hmm. Amy Goodman spoke about 9-11 seriously, you know, maybe she would lose her pulpit. Uh, we look at what we call, what some people say is you look at the media that are staying silent about this. They are, they are the alternative media that receive funding from giant foundations. And so one theory is that these media, that's a democracy now, and that is um, some of the, some, you know, the, maybe the nation, the progressive, uh, counterpunch, I don't know exactly where all of their funding comes from, but much of the funding of many of these media come from major grants from uh, perhaps the Ford Foundation or other foundations. So we suspect they would lose their money and then they would lose their pulpit. So we don't know. It's, it's something we would love to hear about and know, hear their confessions, really. Yeah. My guest is Francis Schur, uh, psychologist, our author of Why Do Good People Become Silent or Worse About 9-11. You can pick up these articles on AE 911truth.org, and she's going to be uh, uh, publishing four on, on the media. Uh, and, and we've had a, a number of them so far. Uh, let, let me ask another question that has, has come up uh, to me every now and then. It says, credible organizations such as NIST have shown that the buildings came down uh, because of fires. Uh, why should I trust this small group of doubters, meaning AE 9-11 Truth? All right. Well, yes. And NIST, the National Institute of Standards and Technology, I had a friend who told me, this is, I think, summed it up. She said, Fran... People are not going to listen to you because to them, NIST is God. (laughs) Now, that kind of gets into nationalist faith, which we... Oh, I want to talk about that, too. Yeah. Yeah. So so they said NIST is God. NIST has such credibility. Uh, We will believe anything NIST says. Uh, uh, Why would we believe anyone who goes against God, basically? And um, so what people are not aware of is NIST is not an independent uh, institution. NIST is a part of the Department of Commerce, and NIST directors are appointed by the president. So at the time, my under- let me put it this way, my understanding is that at the time that NIST did its study on the collapses of the three buildings, the directors of NIST who were in charge of this study had been appointed by Bush II, uh, George W. Bush. And so we can, what we suspect is, is so blatant that their research is not good research. It is, it is, it is also fraudulent. So what we suspect is NIST has abandoned its reputation as a credible organization. And the research it's done on 9-11 has served a political purpose, not a scientific one. We know that NIST, as far as WTC7, which fell at, uh, at free fall speed for two and, two, two and a quarter seconds, which is huge. It cannot happen without controlled demolition. Uh, NIST has uh, refused. First of all, they're, they're, they only could look at computer simulations. Their computer simulations did not at all reflect the reality of the situation, and they will not share their computer simulations, and what was the reason given for why they will not share their computer simulations? Well, the reason is, they said with a straight face, because it might jeopardize public safety. Hmm. People so, might, yeah, so people might we, doubt them. Yeah, so I, I think it might jeopardize their safety. <laughs> so here we go. We have, we have a belief in NIST that is like, NIST is not to ever be questioned, and indeed, in the past, they had a very good reputation 
And we're looking for whistleblowers in NIST. We feel that NIST, uh, that there are people probably still working for NIST who have a lot of integrity who um, cannot speak up without losing their jobs. You know, you talked about belief. That, that's really the big factor, isn't it? Yes. Beliefs that trump evidence. Yes, exactly. And one of those beliefs is in a, a belief in what the goodness of of our country, right? I mean, and, and it yes. really is kind of hard. I mean, we we uh, we might not agree with these people politically, and we've certainly made mistakes and done bad things. But gosh, this seems to be so um, evil. Yes, that's right. And and as a um, this is what we call uh, in one of my uh, installations on why do good people become silent or worse about nine eleven is on American exceptionalism and nationalist faith. And uh, American exceptionalism is a term that has been looked at by a number of people. It's basically a belief that America uh, is fundamentally good. We, our leaders may do things that, are, that cause harm, but they would never intentionally do so. Uh, that their intentions are always good, and um, and that we always behave better than other nations do, and we have a special genius about us, uh, and that uh, we're responsible for most of the good in the world. And basically, God is on our side. Um, uh, God is on the side of America. This is these are kind of the tenets of American exceptions. We all are brought up with them. Uh, we, we hear it in our churches, we hear it in our schools, in our families, in our social institutions, and we all are inculcated with this belief system. Um, there is a professor out of Harvard, Stephen Walt, who said something like, uh, now if we really want to be exceptional, we will have to look at um, the, we will have to start doing critical thinking about our country. And then we would really and truly be exceptional. In other words, we have to be able to face the dark side of our country and look at that. And then we would truly be exceptional. Yeah, it's deeply embedded. I mean, it goes back to, uh, you know, even Western values uh, from the Bible itself, even for people who may or may not be religious. The idea of an exceptional chosen people and, and uh, yes. the city on the hill and all of that. So there's a lot of, of, of history that's kind of in our um, collective DNA, I suppose, that keeps us uh, from um, criticizing ourselves at a deep level. Yes, yes. And I don't think we're unique in that. I think most cultures, most countries have something similar to that. Uh, we have to believe in our system. We have to believe that we are a good people because we identify with that system. And if our system is good, then we're good. If our system is bad, then that means somehow for those of us who don't think it through, uh, then somehow we're not okay if our system is not okay. Uh, but this goes even further. It goes to what um, I believe is John Cobb and David Ray Griffin talk about nationalist faith. It's when that crosses over a boundary and we believe, and this is true for most Americans or many Americans, we believe that um, we identify with our country more than our faith, more than our Christian faith. And this is what David Ray Griffin laments. He says, one of the things I'm finding out is Christians uh, don't care if their, if their religious beliefs are, are criticized, but they care a lot if their country is criticized. And that's what's called nationalist faith. We have a faith in our nation that's greater than our faith in God. So he laments that fact. And he says, I hope Christians, that 9-11 will help Christians come to the realization that our main uh, loyalty needs to be to the divine, to God, and not to our country. Friends, uh, Shure is, is my guest on, on Progressive Spirit. We just have really about a couple minutes left, but I want to leave um, this question with you. Consider now that the, uh, the, the folks might be listening here are, have the evidence and they want to talk to their friends. What would you say is good advice and bad advice to uh, talking about helping people understand the evidence and overcoming uh, perhaps these internal psychological barriers? Right, and and just to realize that this is very important, and realize also we have our own psychological. I still have my psychological barriers. Oh, I know okay. this is a taboo topic, and I have to push sometimes hard 
through my own taboo barrier to talk about this issue. Um, but one of the things uh, to realize is what I'm learning is that um, uh, if people are very closed, if they start arguing with me, uh, then facts are not going to get you anywhere. Uh, one of the things I've learned to say or ask is, listen, if what I'm saying about 9-11 is true, would you want to know about it? And then that question stops them in their tracks almost every time. And they'll say, well, sure. And then I'll say, well, then here's a DVD you might want to watch. And please, after you watch it, give me some feedback. Let me know what you think about it. And, um, and another thing to keep in mind is if a person is very uh, resistive, keep in mind they have their needs to keep their belief intact, to keep their worldview intact, and try the best we, we need to try the best we can to set aside our own agenda to get them to listen to us. I mean, I have my own agenda that I want people to listen to me with respect. That's my need. Um, try to set that aside and listen to them and gain empathy for them. That's the first thing to do, gain empathy for them, for their, their, where they are. Um, if, we, if we studied nonviolent communication, they give us some really good techniques, and it really comes down to finding empathy for the person with whom we have a conflict. Do that first and then get to the subject later. I think those are the main things I have learned about this and still learning. I think it's going to be a lifelong learning process here. Absolutely. Frances, sure, I'm going to have you back. She is the author of Why Do Good People Become Silent or Worse about uh, 9-11, a series of essays that you can uh, get at ae911truth.org. That's Architects and Engineers for 911truth.org. Uh, she'll be coming up with a series of, of including some more uh, regarding the media uh, published soon. Uh, Fran, so much. Thank you so much uh, for your work, and, and thanks for being with me today. And thank you for your work, Tom. Progressive Spirit is heard every week. On Progressive Spirit, you hear interviews with cutting-edge scholars, authors, and activists who have something to say about social justice, human flourishing, and things that matter. I'm always on the lookout for interesting guests. The more non-mainstream, the better. I'm looking for people who are telling the truth and have evidence to back it up. This is serious business, living in the empire, run by the deep state. We need freedom of the airwaves and the Internet, and we need truth-tellers to expose the lies of criminals in high places. Progressive Spirit is formatted for radio and is distributed every week through Pacifica Radio Network and PRX, the public radio exchange. You can also catch Progressive Spirit on your favorite podcast app. If you like the show, please share it on your social media and say nice things. The website is ProgressiveSpirit.net. Facebook, Twitter, I do all of that too. I'm also the leader of a progressive congregation in Beaverton, Oregon, Southminster Presbyterian Church. Progressive Spirit is produced in the studios of KBOO in Portland, Oregon. I'm John Shuck. Be well.